0: Um, a lot of these so-called new atheists come from my own country of England uh, particularly people you might have heard of like um, Richard Dawkins um, A.C. Grayling uh, the late Christopher Hitchens um, a lot of them actually from uh, people who went to Oxford University Uh, and then there are a number of American uh, writers uh, in this grouping and some uh, over here on the continent as well Now I'm a Christian philosopher from England and I am going to be criticising some aspects of the so called new atheism. But I think it's important to say that I, I think I think that everything that I say today is something that could be said by an atheist who is not one of the new atheists. There are are, uh, atheists who would make the same criticisms of the new atheism that I'm going to be saying today. So this is not a particularly Christian critique of the new atheists, but rather a more general philosophical critique of the the new atheists. So, let's uh, start off with... uh, The recently deceased Christopher Hitchens um, came from England, became an American citizen, very well-known journalist, and latterly uh, author of books like, um, he wrote a book called uh, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And this is a really good quote for understanding, I think, a kind of key aspect of the, the new atheism. Hitchens says, I not only maintain that all religions are versions of the same untruth, but I hold that religious belief is positively harmful. Now, of course, all atheists think that uh, religious people hold fundamentally false beliefs about the world. So all atheists think there's no God, and I'm wrong in believing that there's a God. But the new atheists don't just think I'm making an intellectual mistake when I believe in God. They think I'm making a, a moral kind of mistake as well. I'm, I'm believing something that leads to uh, social problems. That uh, The very nature, indeed, of having a belief in God, according to the new atheists, involves you in something evil as it were and it's particularly this uh, new atheist picture of what it is to have faith their understanding of of faith that is at the very heart of their criticism of religion as Hitchin says he says religion is a surrender of reason in favour of faith so the New atheists would say there's, there's believing things reasonably and there's having faith. And they are completely different ways of going about believing things. And all religion means having faith rather than having reason in what you believe. That is something that defines a New Atheist view of religion... And as I say, there are lots of atheist thinkers who would say the new atheists are, are wrong uh, about that. There's the new atheist believes that at the core, at the heart of even the most sort of outwardly nice Christian theism, um, many people will think of the sort of the picture of the, the English vicar hosting the summer fate garden party dishing out cups of tea and cake they're very very nice very very lovely but even at the heart of that kind of religion is an immoral an immoral commitment to to flouting to going against your intellectual responsibilities because you're having faith rather than following reason that is there their view on what it is to have religious faith. And I think they're wrong about that. You see, it's one thing to accuse a a belief system, such as Christianity, of intending to be rational, but failing to be rational. You say, OK, I see that you're trying to live up to your intellectual responsibilities... I just think that you've failed, and I guess you know lots of atheists could say that about Christianity. They might say, "I think Christians are trying to believe responsibly. It's just that they've failed to believe responsibly." It's quite another thing to accuse a belief system like Christianity of being deliberately irrational. Of of not even intending to be reasonable in what you believe. And the new atheists think that all religion is a matter of being deliberately irrational. It's almost as if they haven't read Bible verses like 1 Peter 3.15. This is the Apostle Peter writing to fellow Christians. And he says... Always be prepared to give an answer. And the word that we're translating as answer there in, in the Greek that Peter wrote in is, is apologia, um, a rational defence. It was a, a term from the law courts, what your defence lawyer would do for you when he stood up, stood, up, stood up in court on your behalf. Be prepared to give an apologia, a rational defence, of to everyone who asks you to give the reason... For the hope that you have. For your trust in Christ. And do it with gentleness and respect. So. Whether or not Christians. Succeed. In having good. Rational defences. Good reasons for what they believe. According to. The key document of Christianity itself. Christians are at least. Aspiring. Intending. To have good reasons for what they believe. That doesn't mean they do have any good reasons. But Christians should think that they have good reasons. They might be mistaken in thinking that they have good reasons. But they are trying, intending to have good reasons. As John Lennox, another philosopher from Oxford says... The New Atheists are are characterised by a blind faith, that all faith is blind. Indeed, the very fact that in English you can qualify the term faith by saying, oh, that's blind faith, should indicate that there's a difference between having, having blind faith in something and what faith on its own is meant to mean. Uh, Lennox says don't they even bother to consult dictionaries Um, I've consulted a few, here's one and you'll notice amongst the definitions of faith that you'll find in a dictionary yes there is blind faith it says here a firm belief in something for which there's no proof you might say well that's blind faith but that's, that's only one possible meaning of the term faith Um, It also means things like um, loyalty, keeping your promises, keeping good faith with someone. Um, Trust, I think, is a really good translation of what uh, the Bible means by faith. So A.C. Grayling, one of the new atheists from Oxford, says faith involves deliberate ignoring of evidence or commitment despite a lack of evidence. That's what faith is. Richard Dawkins says faith is is blind trust in the absence of evidence or even in the teeth of evidence to the contrary. But as I I say, I think a much better... uh, way of communicating what the biblical text means by faith would be the English word trust. And you even have here Sam Harris, one of the new atheists, does a bit of a word study on the original languages he talks about the, the Hebrew and Greek terms in the Bible which we, we translate as to have faith, can also be translated as to believe or to trust. And of course you can, you can believe in someone or trust someone for good reasons. You might believe in someone without any reasons, but also you might believe in them for reasons. Just because you know I trust someone doesn't uh, automatically tell you whether or not my trust in them is is well-placed, well-grounded, or not. It might be, it might not be. And yet despite... Knowing that background about the meaning of the, the language, the original language that we're translating, Sam Harris completely misrepresents various um, Bible verses in an attempt to, to demonstrate to his audience that all religious faith is, by definition, blind faith. So he looks at a particularly famous verse about the nature of faith uh, in the book of Hebrews. He says that Hebrews 11.1 y- 1 defines faith and then he quotes from Hebrews as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Read in the right way, he says, that passage seems to render faith entirely self-justifying, entirely blind. I would suggest that it that's to read the verse entirely the wrong way, to make it mean that. Indeed, I think Hebrews 11.1 1 would be entirely consistent with the, the repetitive biblical insistence on the importance of reason and evidence when it comes to matters of believing in God. I'm not going to go through all those quotes there, but there's a bunch of quotes there from the Old Testament Uh, from the New Testament, from Jesus, from Paul, from Peter uh, talking about the importance of explaining, proving, defending, confirming evidence when it comes to matters of religious belief and it would be surprising if this one verse sort of stood out from the crowd and suddenly said no forget all that it's all about blind faith and there's a context to that verse. These are the, the verses running up to Hebrews 11.1. 1. And it's talking about a time when Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire. And the author says, Remember those days after you'd received the light, you endured a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insults and persecution. And you stood side by side with those who were. Insulted and persecuted. You suffered and so on. Then he says, Don't throw away your confidence, that is, your confidence in, in God, in Christ. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere, persevere in having confidence in God, so that when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised. What has Do Christians think God has promised to them, well, forgiveness in Jesus, eternal life in in heaven, after this world, and so on. And then we get to the verse that Sam Harris quotes. Now, faith is being sure of what you don't see, and so on. So it's the fulfillment of this promise that Hebrews is talking about this promise of salvation, promise of heaven, and so on, that Hebrews 11.1 has in mind in the context. And it's really only saying that to have faith means trusting God to deliver on his promises, such as the promise of, of heaven in the afterlife, without needing to see heaven here and now whilst you're suffering. Being certain of what we don't see yet, as it were. Because here and now we're suffering and being persecuted by the Romans. But hold on so that you will receive what God has promised. He will keep his promises. You've got to trust him. That doesn't imply that you have to trust God in the absence of any reasons to trust him it's perfectly compatible with thinking that you you have good reasons to trust God, whether or not those reasons really are good reasons. Indeed, when you dive into, again, some of the language behind that Hebrews verse, you find the context culturally of that language is actually all about things that are completely the opposite of having blind faith. Um, you might know the, the Greek myth uh, of Pandora's box. In Greek mytho- mythology, it's pistis that's the spirit of trust. Pistis is the same Greek root as the word we, we translate as faith or believe or trust. To be convinced. Uh, we get it in the, in the philosophical term epistemology. Theory of knowledge, pistis, epistemology. So when Pandora opens Pandora's box, this spirit of trust and honesty flees to heaven, leaving behind only the bad things in the world. But that's the sort of cultural background of this term here. Or where he says assurance, it's a business term. It's, talking, it's a term often used in business contracts. I give you a contract to say, um, I'll give you this and you promised in exchange to give me that. And we've got a contract, legal document that shows we've made this agreement. So if you try and double cross me, I can take you to court. The assurance of things hopeful, the assurance of heaven. We've got this sort of binding contract with God. Or uh, the conviction of things not seen. Um, it's a word that conveys the idea of bringing forth evidence for something. Um, particularly, interestingly enough, something that doesn't appear to be the case at first glance. It, it's evidence for something being not quite the way things at first appear to be. So very clearly, when you look at the language, the cultural background, the context of that verse, Sam Harris, in in trying to make it mean, there you are, the Bible says you should just have blind faith, he has to completely rip it out of context in order to make it mean that. It it doesn't mean that at all. (laughs) Likewise, was the story of Doubting Thomas, you know, the story of Doubting Thomas when Jesus is... Uh, said to be raised from the dead. And Thomas says, uh, I'm not going to believe that he's been raised from the dead until I can you know, put my fingers in the holes where the nails were. When well, he says, well, there you go. Doesn't that story show that faith is all about um, ignorance? Blessed are those who've not seen and yet believe. There you are. It's all about blind faith. In that story irrespective of whether it's, it's true or not but we're talking about the meaning of the story here Jesus commends people who believe without demanding to see for themselves at first hand but he doesn't condemn people who, he doesn't say you've got to believe without evidence Thomas has got the other ten disciples he's got ten of his best mates that he's known for years all saying to him we've come to believe that Jesus rose from the dead because we saw him and he says to them I'm not going to believe the evidence of your testimony to me I'll only believe if I see firsthand, like you did that's not quite the same thing uh Saying to Thomas, really, you should have trusted the evidence that you already had without demanding more than that. Saying that's not quite the same thing as saying no one should have evidence for believing that Jesus rose for the dead. Indeed, in John's gospel itself that this story comes from, you have Jesus in a couple of places, affirming people believing on the basis of evidence. It says, believe on the evidence of the miracles, in one verse. So why would a gospel at one point have Jesus saying to people, come on, you should believe in me because of the evidence I'm giving you, and somewhere else have a story where Jesus is saying to people, you should believe in me without having any evidence. maybe the writer is just very confused but that's not a very charitable way of interpreting uh, the text so the other disciples are portrayed as believing why? because they saw because they genuinely thought they had good evidence for what they believed whether or not they did and indeed Immediately after the story of doubt, of doubting Thomas, the, uh, the gospel itself puts this um, comment at the John 20 uh, 30 to 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of His disciples, which aren't recorded in this book. But these miraculous signs that are recorded here are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, John's Gospel itself says, the reason I'm telling you these stories, like the story of Doubting Thomas, is so that you, the reader, will have evidence to base your belief in Jesus on. So it would completely contradict the, the express purpose of the writer of this story... To say, the whole point of the story is about having blind faith. Um, that would be a very, very confused writer who would produce such a message. So I would much more prefer to go with a, this is an older scholar from Oxford. You probably know C.S. Lewis from his um, Narnia books and so on. but I think he, he gives a very good uh, way of communicating the Christian concept of faith. When he says, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted, in spite of your changing moods. And he gives one example, he says, look, I've got every rational reason to think that uh, were I to be going into hospital to have a, a major operation... And they're going to offer me general anaesthetic and put me to sleep. I've got every reason to think that I will not feel pain during the operation. I'll be be out. But just because I've got every intellectual reason for believing this is not going to hurt, does that mean when I'm lying there on the operating table just before they try and put me under, that I won't get a bit nervous that I might suddenly be gripped with this desire to sort of say, I want to get out of here. Oh, oh, good grief. Look at the knife. Have you seen the size of that needle? (laughs) And to have faith in the the hospital, in the anesthetician, is to stay on that table and breathe the gas that he's going to give me on the basis of the the reasons that I have for believing that it's going to work, rather than listening to that little voice of panic inside me that says, ignore the evidence, get out of here. Uh, do, 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 do. I've lost my clicker. There it is. I, I love this. He says, uh, Lewis used to be a, an atheist and he went through a long process of gradually coming to believe in a God, and then Christianity some years later. And he says here, now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. Unless you teach your moods where, where to get off. You can never be a sound Christian or even a sound atheist. Whatever it is you believe in life, our moods, our sort of feelings about things come and go. Just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. And how happy you're feeling at the moment, and so on. He says, if we wish to be rational, we must pray for the gift of faith. That is, for the power to go on believing what we have arrived at believing. Not in the teeth of reason, like Richard Dawkins says, but in the teeth of of lust and terror. Uh, jealousy and boredom in other words in the teeth of of temptations not to trust what we think we know and he says this is is a general point about sort of rationally believing things whether you're talking about rationally believing atheism or rationally believing Christianity I'm going to pause there and see if you have any uh, questions about that little section on on what I think is the New Atheist misunderstanding of faith Um, I have a a couple of shorter little sections as well but I don't want to just stand up here and and lecture Um, so I'd rather have some comments or or questions for you um, whether just of clarification or objections or whatever um, before I push on to anything else whether there was anything that I didn't make clear or whatever can we shy. okay well as I say that that there are indeed atheist philosophers who would make much the same point of course there are religious people who don't live up to their intellectual responsibilities in believing things who don't think deeply enough about matters of faith but of course there are atheists who don't think deeply enough about what they believe there are agnostics who really don't live up to their intellectual responsibilities you know um just as there are atheists and agnostics and Christians who do at least make honest efforts to live up to their intellectual o- obligations in terms of what they believe. Um,
1: excuse me, yeah. what is living up to uh,
0: that? Um, yes, um, meeting a standard. Seeing, think so there's, there's it a. it
1: means uh, like believing in evolution for a religious...
0: Uh, I'm not quite sure of the, the, the parallel that you're drawing. Whatever it is you believe, whether it's the theory of evolution or that there's a God uh, or that there's God who created a world that would evolve or whatever, um, there'll be certain um, ways of believing those things that mean you're not really being rational. Whether or not they're true. Suppose evolution's true. There are some people who believe for bad reasons. Maybe they read about the theory of evolution once in a comic book and they liked the pretty pictures so they came to believe in evolution and that's the only reason they believe, say. Philosophers like making up these silly examples. Then they would believe something that's true but they'd have really bad reasons for believing it. They really wouldn't have thought deeply enough. They wouldn't have thought as much about it as someone like Richard Dawkins, who's an evolutionary biologist. Now, he's put a lot of thought and effort into thinking about the theory. So
1: he's right about thinking
0: that evolution is true. Ah, uh, well, now, that doesn't follow. Just because you've thought a lot about something and you've come to believe it, just because you've been rational... It doesn't automatically follow that what you believe is true. But what I'm saying is, um, let's move on to the example of of God. I think I would say, and a lot of atheist philosophers would say, okay, some people believe there's a God, and some people believe that there isn't. And they can't both be right, (laughs) because either God does exist or he doesn't. But, on both sides of the question, there are people who are rational in what they believe, in the sense that um, they've put a, a good deal of thought into it. They've put a good deal, the, the sort of effort into trying to, to be reasonable in what they believe about that issue. Now, of course, they know people, other people disagree with them. And so on. But they can say to each other, okay, we disagree about this. One of us is obviously wrong. I think it's you. (laughs) You think it's me. But we don't have to say to each other, because I think I'm right, therefore you must be being stupid. You must be irrational. You only believe because that's what you're your parents believe. People on both sides could say that to each other quite a lot. Um, Instead what we can say is, okay, either there is a God or there isn't. I think there is. You think there isn't. I think I'm right. I think I'm rational. I've I've met my kind of intellectual obligations so far as arriving at that kind of belief. Um, But I think probably you are rational as well in as much as you've given it a great deal of thought and we've come to different conclusions and I'm not going to say well you're stupid or you just haven't thought about it enough um, yeah. excuse me, do, do you see uh,
2: below us the matter of speaking on that personal level and that I think that I'm rational and you think that you're rational etc. Don't you see the the major logical failure uh, just because you give an example uh, that uh, some people believe there was an evolutionary process but before that process happened the God created the world which later evolved. Mm. Well, isn't that a major major logical failure because whatever gets proven you can always put the pre knowledge of yeah, that's okay, but God created it, and that person is always right huh. no matter what happens no matter how many of evolutionary mm. process uh, physical uh, laws and things that are yeah. Yeah. so far but continue you uh, they all can be put under the hat of god created it and that ultimately makes that person right
0: okay i think it i think it just is true that those two claims about reality are logically compatible with each other are consistent with each other um I think just from analyzing the, the meaning of those claims you can see that they don't contradict each other, and so they could both be true. It could be true that God created a universe and that that universe contains a process of evolution it, it doesn't there's no way of, of deducing from the premise evolution is true the conclusion you know, something else, therefore God doesn't exist and didn't create the universe. I, I don't see it, so they're consistent,
2: but... So it's a a question of uh, becoming.
0: Yeah, yeah. However far you push back the scientific description of a process, it still leaves hanging the question of what that process itself created for a purpose or not. And whichever answer you give, one way or the other, is a philosophical answer.
1: Because we cannot prove that God exists or not. So we will always be like, maybe he exists and maybe not. Mm. So that question will always hang there without any...
0: Well, no, I think what I would say was th- is this. Our, our friend, I think, is right in pointing out that these two theories are, are consistent with each other. But just because they're consistent with each other doesn't mean that they're... Both true
2: Um, There are not two theories. Yeah. In in the case you explained, both sides believe in uh, evolution theory, Mm -hmm. only that one side takes for granted that God created the star, the first particle of life, and the other one Mm -hmm. just stays silent on the matter because the science did not go that far.
0: Right, but it it might be that 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 might be the case but it also might be the case that both sides think they have philosophical reasons supporting their view the person who believes in God might think there are good reasons for believing in, in God and good reasons for believing in evolution and see that they're both compatible and therefore believe in both and the atheist might say I see there are good reasons for believing in evolution, I see that that doesn't contradict belief in God, but I think I have other good reasons for saying there isn't a God. Maybe I think the problem of evil shows that there there couldn't be a God.
2: That that, that, that other person mm. is not anti Not That person is not going into, God does not exist. mm. That person says, I believe in evolution theory because I have scientific proof of God." Right. and about the first sparkle of life I will say God did it when I get some hard evidence of that God right. that person is just seeking the answer and mm-hmm. the other person is well blind faith
0: uh, well now
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> there I would uh, there, I think back to the, the, the point I'm making there are, there's a whole number of different people here as it were, we're talking about a lot of different people you've sort of brought in an agnostic we might have an atheist, we might have a Christian Uh, the Christian might be someone who has no good reasons for believing in God hasn't lived up to their intellectual obligations they've got blind faith but the Christian might be someone who thinks I've got good philosophical arguments for believing that there's a God who created the world likewise the the atheist or the the agnostic Um, again they might be an atheist with blind faith that atheism is true or they might be an atheist who's really thought about it and thinks they've got a good reason for their atheism and so on Just, just because you can't go from okay you're a Christian or you're an atheist or you're an agnostic or you believe in this, that and the other that doesn't tell you why do they believe that they may or may not believe what they believe in a way that means they're Intellectually responsible. And just because they believe whatever it is they believe in an intellectually responsible manner doesn't prove, as it were, that they're right or that they're wrong. So I would separate out okay, what what is someone believing? That's one question. Do they think they've got a good reason? Are they trying to be intellectually responsible about what they believe on this matter? That's another question. Are they actually, as far as we can tell, succeeding in being intellectually responsible? That's another question. Are they actually right? Well, that's still another question. And we're going to tend to disagree about, are they actually right in terms of whether or not we think we're rational. <laughs> um, but as I say, just because you're rational in believing something doesn't prove that you're right about it, you can be rational and wrong. What we have control over, as it were, as it, as it were, is whether or not we're we're being rational whether we're living up to our intellectual obligations Um, we have control over that whether or not we're right well the facts have control over that the way reality is determines whether or not our beliefs are true or false Um, all we can have control over is doing our best to believe disbelieve sensibly Um, that's what we have responsibility for Um, and I think two people can say to each other we disagree but I think we're both being responsible we're having a responsible intellectual disagreement whereas the new atheists really do tend to have this mindset of saying we disagree I know know I think I've been responsible therefore you must be stupid Therefore, you must be believing in the the teeth of evidence to the contrary, or you must be just having blind faith. That's what it means to have a religious belief. And whilst I would admit that, yes, some religious believers do have blind faith and don't believe responsibly, I think other religious believers do. (laughs) I think I do (laughs) believe responsibly. (laughs) You know, I may or may not be right. I think I'm right. (laughs) Um, But I'm not I'm not a subjectivist about reality. I don't call the shots about the way reality is. Reality does. (laughs) Um, You know, um, I might be wrong. (laughs) If you don't admit you might be wrong about what you believe, why bother putting any effort into what what you believe?
1: religious person uh, who admits that you may be wrong. So, it's like, mm. it's
0: cool To hear that. Okay. Yeah, I, I think religious people. I think everybody should say, you know, unless it, un, unless you're talking about, you know, things that are self-contradictory to say. Things that just couldn't possibly be true. You know, if I say to you. I know that I can't speak any English.
1: <laughs>
0: okay, Obviously, I'm wrong about that. <laughs> um, if I say to you, um, there's an interesting square circle in the courtyard out there, you know I'm wrong. There, there are some things that we, that we just couldn't be wrong about. I know there are no square circles. Okay. Um, but whether or not there's a God, whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, it's, we're not talking mathematical certainty and proof and, and things that are just self-contradictory to doubt. But then most things in life are in that kind of position. Um, and all we can do in those positions where it's just not blindingly obvious what the answer is, is do our best to live up to our intellectual responsibilities and when we have a disagreement with people and they say, and we say, oh, we've arrived at different answers to this question well, what are your reasons? let me try and think about them and be open to being persuaded by your reasons if they're better reasons than my reasons maybe I ought to change my mind um, yeah. okay The time I've got a little bit of time left, shall I go on at least to um, one little section? I would say not only are the new atheists wrong about the nature of faith, they kind of take a a bad way of of believing and apply that to everybody automatically, and it doesn't automatically apply to everyone, but they, they try and advance a sort of positive answer. We, the new atheists, will provide the, the positive, responsible alternative to having blind religious faith. And they try and uh, defend rationality, being reasonable, living up to your intellectual obligations. Now, as you see, I'm all in favour of that. <laughs> but I think the way in which the new atheists go about defending being rational rather than having blind faith is profoundly problematical and is actually very anti-rational. So see if I can convince you on one or two of these points here. First is is a, a, a puzzle in the new atheist thinking about the nature of free will and rationality. So, neotheist Sam Harris is very clear that he doesn't believe in libertarian free will. He believes in de- determinism. So he says, free will is nowhere to be found. Um, if we view people as neuronal, neurons in our brain, weather patterns, just this chaotic interaction of physical elements, if we view people as neuronal weather patterns, how can we coherently speak about Morality. He says, given naturalism, he believes in naturalism, every action is clearly reducible to a totality of impersonal events, this sort of reductionism of the personal to the, the material impersonal uh, explanations, propagating their influence. Genes are transcribed, neurotransmitters bind to their receptors, muscle fibers contract, and John Doe pulls the trigger on the gun. Okay? We might want to say, "Oh, John Doe murdered Fred," but Sam Harris says, uh, "What happened is there was a series of physical causes governed by the laws of physics that certain chemicals interacted, certain electrical signals went to muscles, certain muscles contracted, a trigger pulled, a firing pin went into the." And so on. It's just a chain of physical, that's all there is. Because the only kind of reality that there is is the material, physical, natural world. Or um, Richard Dawkins, again, has very much the same view. He says, isn't the murderer just a machine with a defective component? It might be defective education or defective genes. Concepts like blame and responsibility are bandied about freely, interesting, freely, uh, where human wrongdoers are concerned. But doesn't a a mechanistic view of the nervous system, a a materialistic picture of what a person is, doesn't that make nonsense of the very idea of of moral responsibility? Uh, Any crime is, in principle, to be blamed on antecedent conditions we're just just the end point of this chain of cause and effect some of that chain of cause and effect is in this body the rest of it stretches back all the way to the beginning of the big bang presumably so antecedent conditions acting acting through the accused physiology why do we vent such visceral hatred on child murderers when we should think about the word should there when we should simply regard them as faulty units that need fixing or replacing. Okay. So this is their, their expressed view that there is no free will of the kind that seems to make philosophical sense of our notions, our everyday notions of, of responsibility and blame and so on. We're just part of this big causal chain in which stuff happens but not in a way that we're responsible. If I'm backing my car out of the garage, and I take, you know, I'm looking in the mirrors, I'm going slow, next door's cat has got a death wish. (laughs) In my blind spot, I can't see, you know, and I reverse over the cat. You know, the next door neighbour, whose cat I've just flattened, <laughs> saw this out of their window. Couldn't make themselves heard. <laughs> yeah. Comes over to me. They'd be right to say you were part of the cause, the series of causes that led to my cat being flat. But it wasn't your fault. You're not to blame. Yeah. It's very different than if I'm reversing the car. I see the cat in my mirror and I swerve deliberately in order to hit the cat, then not only am I part of the the causal chain that led to the cat being flat, I'm part of that chain in a way that means I'm morally responsible for the cat being flat. And Dawkins and Sam Harris are saying, people aren't really ever part of causal chains in a way that makes them morally responsible. Now, not every atheist has that view about free will. Of course, there are atheists who believe in free will. But the new atheists tend not to be that kind of atheist. So here's the sort of question I would then put back to them, remembering that so far they've been going on about the evils of having blind faith and not living up to your intellectual responsibilities when it comes to forming beliefs about religious things. And now they're saying, but of course, nobody really has any responsibilities. I find it very hard to put those two together in a consistent way, since they can have one or the other, but not both of them. if everything about a person is, is governed by the laws of physics, surely blaming them for intellectual failings like having blind faith in a god would make about as much sense as Newton blaming the fabled apple for giving him a bump on the head. <laughs> yeah, the apple gave him a bump on the head, but it doesn't make any sense to tell the apple off. Say, so, very naughty apple! It doesn't. Ha- it didn't choose to give him a bump on the head. So, how could anyone, such as a Christian, be responsible for not living up to their intellectual obligations if they aren't libertarianly free to live up to any obligations in the first place? It just seems like a contradictory set of beliefs. What about that one?
2: It's not like atheists that say you must live up to your intellectual obligations. They say you can't, you, you can or you don't do that, but you just have some options in front of you, but it's not morally good or bad Right. so this mm. is not quite holding the water
0: I think this is the question that, I, that I'm going to come on to next, I think that's a separate question, it's a very good issue
2: and if that which you represented as in some frame for ultimate morality is present and then we have again those two persons we discussed mm. speaking and they both love their neighbors as that person and I mm. like my neighbor as much as my last little rubbish will yeah. be just nice because society made me that way. Sure. Who's right, who's wrong and in whose favor God is in that
0: situation. <laughs> <sighs> Great question. I would I would want to draw a very clear distinction between two topics again as you know, philosophers love distinctions keeps everything neat and tidy in our sock drawers on the one hand there's the question of is there something that is objectively right or wrong and if so what is it and if so how do I get the power to actually do it that's kind of about moral knowledge and I think that Christians and atheists can agree on a lot of issues to do with moral knowledge. Um, There are certainly atheist philosophers who will uh, argue for the objective reality of moral obligations and give some very good arguments for that that don't mention God. And I think they're good arguments. Um, Particularly, let me recommend the writings of an English philosopher called um, Russ Schaefer-Landau. Um, He's an atheist moral philosopher and has written a couple of very good books defending objectivity of moral values. He just thinks that has nothing to do with God. He just thinks there are objective moral values. But there's this other question about, well, given that there are objective moral values in reality, which worldview is the best explanation of that fact or the most consistent with that kind of reality existing what kind of thing is an objective moral fact and does that have any implications for our beliefs about the issue of whether or not there's a God and those are very separate issues so I I think both the atheist and I could agree yes, clearly the thing that we ought objectively to be doing is loving our neighbour as ourselves And maybe the atheist will be a lot better at doing that than I will.
1: So he will be in favour of God.
0: But it's just that I would say, when it comes to the the question, well, why is there such a thing as this objective fact that we should do that? We're going to give differing explanations. um, And we can't both be right about that. I would tie it to, well, it's because there's... A greatest possible being, God, who's morally perfect—that's his character. Um, that is the the objective standard by which we we're really measuring things when we say, you know, this is better than that, and so on. The atheists would say, no, it's just that there are these objective moral values, and that doesn't imply anything about God. Fine. So, see, we're we're agreeing on this issue over here, but we're disagreeing on this issue uh, over there. And I want to kind of keep them in. Obviously, they're related. But you can have agreement here and disagreement there. Um, Now, the new atheists tend to be the kind of atheist, unlike Russ Schaefer-Landau, who say there are no objective moral values. It's all subjective. Um, Richard Dawkins here, uh, in Scientific American, says that there is at bottom in the universe no design, no purpose. That would imply there's no God. No evil, no good nothing but pitiless indifference. There's just nature doing its stuff, and if you get caught between the cogwheels, you're going to get mushed. But that, you know, stuff happens. No evil, no good. He, indeed, he says um, elsewhere, and this is from um, John Brockman's What's Your Dangerous Idea again? He says there's this non-overlapping, exhaustive distinction, he wants to draw a distinction, between ideas that are false or true about the real world, Factual matters and ideas about what we ought to do. Ideas about what we ought to do are not about factual matters, he says. Normative or moral ideas for which the words true and false have no meaning.
1: I think he's right because, I mean, society defines stuff as uh, right or wrong. For example, apes cannot define it's right or wrong, I don't know, mm. to kill someone. True. Uh, or, I don't know, plants cannot decide, or, mm. I don't know, animals. But we, we can decide uh, whether it's right or wrong,
0: so society yeah. does that stuff. So, in this matter, he's right, I think. My yeah, sure. What he's saying, of course, is when people come to think that or decide that certain action is morally wrong... There's no objective fact of the matter about whether or not they're right about that. We have an opinion. I have an opinion that the Holocaust was wrong. The commander of Belsen Concentration Camp had an opinion about (coughs) being involved in the Holocaust. It was very different from the opinion I would have. Um, But according to Dawkins, neither of us are Right or wrong about that when I say the holocaust was wrong that's not true it's not false (laughs) it's not true it's just my kind of subjective opinion or my choice Um, so here's a quote from the the God Delusion at one point he says Hitler and Stalin were by any standard spectacularly evil men But what he means, if we take him at his word by that, is, well, what does he mean? He means they made different choices than me. Um, So when he says something like faith is an evil, precisely because it requires no justification, requires no argument, I think not only is is he wrong about this bit, misrepresenting the very... Meaning of the term faith. I've got a big question, well, what does he really mean here? You might naively think he's saying it's objectively wrong too, but clearly, if we take him on his word, he's not saying that. He's only saying it's subjectively wrong, i.e., I mean, I don't like that. So when he says you ought to live up to your intellectual obligations not have faith you ought to be reasonable doesn't mean ought in an objective moral sense doesn't mean that he doesn't mean that the, the the Christian who does have blind faith is doing something actually wrong that they really should Think about it more, or they really ought to try to be more reasonable, put more effort into doing a bit of reading. He's not saying any of that, according to him himself. But again, this sort of how could anyone feel an intellectual obligation to agree with a movement like the New Atheism? when that movement denies there's any objective reality to intellectual obligations and it denies that I've actually got any freedom to choose whether or not I'm going to try and follow my intellectual obligations which don't exist anyway Um, so I think I'm all for saying to people let's be reasonable about this as it were but i think that the new atheists hold these and a couple of other viewpoints as well that they really undermine the the resources the foundations that you need for really defending the idea that when it comes to matters of religion just as it you know in any other important matter in life you really ought to try to be reasonable about it, rather than simply saying, well, that's what I feel like believing. I'm just going to have blind faith. Who cares what the opposition says? You say you've got a good argument against me, but la, 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 I don't want to know. So what? You know. Um, And as I said at the beginning, uh, I think everything that I've said is a critique of the, the new atheism there is something that Uh, you could find a, I suppose we could call them classical atheists. If you say old atheists, um, might not really fit, but more classically uh, uh, atheists uh, like Russ schaefer landau and so on, um, could say as as a criticism of the the new atheist movement. Um, And in that sense, I'm not being partisan, although I am giving you my opinion (laughs) on the matter whether or not i've done enough to justify the opinions that i've shared I'll, i'll leave with you any further remaining questions it's it's half past three by the way so if anyone has to to go do i'll stay around for a few minutes to chat um if you want to continue chatting that's great but we will have busy lives so thank you very much for listening me and and being so good at listening to a second language as well. I'm in awe. Um, Your English is far better than my Serbian. (laughs) Thank you.